Welcome to the Automotive Leaders Podcast, where we help you prepare for the future by sharing stories, insights, and skills from leading voices in the automotive world with a mission to transform this industry together. I'm your host, Jan Griffiths, that passionate, rebellious farmer's daughter from Wales with over 35 years of experience in our beloved auto industry and a commitment to empowering fellow leaders to be their best authentic selves. Stay true to yourself. Be you and lead with gravitas, the hallmark of authentic leadership. Let's dive in. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Finding Gravitas Authentic Leadership Podcast. Get ready to join a conversation with Daniel Pink. For those of you who may not be familiar with Dan's work, Dan is recognized as one of the foremost business minds of our day. He's known to be a deep researcher and compelling communicator. He's the author of seven books on business, work, creativity, and behavior, including the New York Times bestsellers, The Power of Regret, When, and A Whole New Mind, and the number one New York Times bestsellers, Drive, and To Sell is Human. Dan's newest book, The Power of Regret, How Looking Backward Moves Us Forward, explores how we can enlist our regrets to make smarter decisions, perform better, and deepen our sense of meaning and purpose. Dan was previously the host of Crowd Control, a television series about human behavior on the National Geographic Channel, and he's appeared frequently on NPR, PBS, ABC, CNN, and countless other TV and radio networks. He's been a contributing editor at Fast Company, Wired, as well as a business columnist for the Sunday Telegraph. His articles and essays have also appeared in the New York Times, the Harvard Business Review, the Atlantic, Slate, and many other publications. Before venturing out on his own 20 years ago, Dan worked in several positions in politics and government, including serving from 1995 to 1997 as chief speechwriter to Vice President Al Gore. Wow. That's quite a background, right? It's an impressive background, but what does all of that have to do with leadership in the automotive industry? I know you're asking yourself that question. The answer is simple, and it comes from Dan's latest book, The Power of Regret. Simply stated, people regret inaction more than they regret taking action. And I want to bring to you, my beloved Finding Gravitas audience, compelling interviews with experts who will challenge our thinking and provide a different perspective. I want to be sure that we don't end up as an industry with the regret of inaction, particularly now during this time of massive disruption and transformation. I explore this topic and more with Dan Pink, the guy who literally wrote the book on regret. In this episode, we'll cover the different types of regret, regrets and values, how to view your actions from the lens of your future self. We talk about back to the office, choosing comfort over discomfort, and Dan's pick 
of his top two of the 21 traits of authentic leadership. Let's get into it and join the conversation. Dan Pink, welcome to the show. Thank you, Jan. Dan Pink, who are you and what is your story? (laughs) Who am I? I'm a human being. I am a citizen of the world. I am a father. I am a husband. Um, I'm a writer and my story is unfinished. Ooh, I like that. I like that. Dan, we're here today to talk about regret. All right. And as you know, I am on a mission to make sure that the automotive industry fully embraces authentic leadership and this time of transformation. I do not want this industry and leaders in this industry to have any regrets, Dan. Well, I mean, I think that's a good, I think that's a good aspiration. I think the other aspiration, Dan, should be to help uh, executives in your industry or any industry learn from their regrets rather than slide past them. Yes. And I can't think of anybody more qualified to talk about this subject than Dan Pink. You've just written a book on the very subject. It's called The Power of Regret. So let's get right into it. And I would like you to highlight for our audience the four core regrets. Sure. Well, what I well, let me take a step back and tell you how I know how I found this. So, um, so among the research that I did for this book is I, I looked at about fifty years of research in social psychology, neuroscience, cognitive science, um, developmental psychology about this peculiar emotion of regret. Uh, I did a large public opinion survey of the U.S. population, but I also collected a lot of regrets from around the world, and we're up to over twenty thousand regrets now from people in one hundred and nine countries. And I found exactly, as you say, that around the world, people have the same four regrets. And I will go through them quickly for you. First, foundation regrets. Foundation regrets are if only I'd done the work. These are people who regret spending too much and saving too little, smoking, not taking care of their bodies, not working hard enough in school, small decisions that create problems later on. Second category, very important for leaders, boldness regrets. Uh, If only I'd taken the chance. These are people, again, in the, in the grand scheme of things, it's, it, 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 it transcends domains. These are people who regret not traveling, not speaking up, not asking somebody out on a date, not starting a business. Third category, moral regrets. If only I'd done the right thing. These are people who regret doing the wrong thing, like bullying kids in school, cheating on their spouse, swindling a business partner, that sort of thing. And then finally, number four are connection regrets. These are regrets about relationships. And the full gamut of relationships, not just our romantic relationships, but our our, our whole life's worth of relationships. Um, and when they come apart and we don't do anything about it, uh, we feel bad and we feel a sense of regret about that. So those are the four regrets, foundation, boldness, moral, and connection. And your research, Dan, has indicated that people regret inaction yeah. more than they regret action. And I, when I first heard that, I heard you actually say that on stage at an OESA event. I had to think about that for a moment. Mm. But when, when, you, when you think about it and you marinate in that, that's true. And you have the data to support that. Yeah. Why did you, why did you, did you not believe it at first or you didn't just understand what, or you didn't understand what I meant? I had to think about it. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Because I, I don't think that it's, I, I agree with you, Jan. I, I don't think that it's an obvious insight. In fact, I think it might be counterintuitive in a way. 
we think a lot about actions and we think less about what we didn't do generally day to day. But when it comes to regret, it's the reverse. And what you and there's a big age effect here. It's one of the few demographic differences I was able to uncover. When we're young, in say in our 20s or so, we tend to have equal numbers of regrets of action, what I did, and regrets of inaction, what I didn't do. As we age, though, the inaction regrets take over, almost by about a two-to-one margin. So we regret what we didn't do much more than, than what we did. And this comes out in those categories because a lot of boldness regrets are almost always regrets of inaction. If only I had traveled more. If only I had asked him out on a date. If only I had started that business. Even connection regrets are often regrets about inaction. Moral regrets are often regrets about action. So it's, a, it's an interesting distinction in the architecture of regret that tells us a lot about what makes human beings tick and what makes life worth living. Yeah, and I think we've all had an opportunity to question our values and whether or not we should take an action or not take an action. That's what the pandemic has done for us. And yeah. three, three years ago, I quit my corporate career. I had a great career right at the top of my game. Everything was wonderful. And I quit to start my own business. I took mm. my salary to zero by design, my <laughs> choice, right? right? And people thought I was nuts. Well, then a pandemic hit. And I had just started to get a few clients and get some speaking gigs. And people said to me, do you regret leaving your corporate job? And I said, no, and I, I, I don't regret it. Now, would it have been nice to have the comfort of some corporate income <laughs> during the pandemic? Yes, of course it would. But that's, that's not what it's about. So, no, I do not regret making the decision. I think I would have regretted not making the decision and staying in a corporate role for the rest of my life until this, you know, this age of retirement, whenever that is. So that's my, my personal story on regret. It's very consistent, Jen, because one of the things that I saw in looking at these thousands upon thousands and upon thousands of regrets are people who say, even had, had terrible outcomes, you even had a terrible outcome, who say, I started a business, totally flopped. But I'm okay with that because at least I gave it a try. There were a few people who said, I started a business, I went on a motor and flopped, I regret that. No question about that. But for every one of those, there were 40 or 50 who had the opposite kind of regret. But it takes, it takes guts, obviously, to make a decision like that. It takes a belief and a commitment in yourself mm -hmm. to make that kind of a change. When I look at the leaders out there right now in automotive, I know that they know that the world is changing, that mm. there's massive disruption in this industry, mm -hmm. and they're going to need to break the mold of command and control Absolutely. and take, a, take an action or do something different. What can we do, Dan, using the power of regret to help them see that now is the time to take that action? Well, it's, it's a few things. I think that more broadly, we can go to these four regrets and they give us some clues about what makes a coherent corporate culture. So what do you want as a leader? What kind of culture do you want to build? You want a culture with some degree of stability. That's what these foundation regrets are about, uh, which is fair pay, physical safety, I guess, in the automotive manufacturing process. So people don't feel precarious. But um, bonus regrets, you want to not only do you want to be able to take chances, but you want to create the conditions of psychological safety that allow your team to take chances. If we are in this period of incredible disruption, and obviously we are, you can't do it alone. 
You need to, you need people in your team to speak up and people in your team to take chances. You got to offer some psychological safety. You got to do the right thing. And a lot of the, the non-moral regrets. And so a lot of this disruption is ultimately about, is in some ways about doing the right thing. Uh, particularly when it comes to the conversion from, you know, in the internal combustion engine, which is burning fossil fuel to vehicles that are cleaner. And then finally is connection regrets. What do people want in your organization? They want a sense of belonging. They want a sense of affinity with each other. That's one part of the answer, Jan. The other thing being a little bit more reductive, a little bit more tactical is there are a few techniques for this, for, for, for deciding what to do. I'll give you two of them. One of them comes from Andy Grove, the former CEO of Intel, who said when he had to face a tough decision, he would always ask himself, what would my successor do? What would my successor do? I think that's a great tool for leaders. What would my successor do? Would your successor say, oh, wait a second, we're at the brink of this seismic change. You know what I'm going to do? I'm, gonna, I'm, going to, I'm going to slow things down. I'm going to put my fingers in the ears and pretend it's not a- actually happening. I'm going to try to restrict progress. No, I don't think your successor would do that. The other thing is for yourself. You know, what story do you want to tell yourself in 10 years? So another technique that I like is, 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 in, is in a sense, making a phone call to the you of 10 years from now, the you of 2032. What does she want you to do? Um, and it's pretty clear for any executive that the, the you of 2032 wants you to be part of this incredible transformation, wants you to be a force in this revolution, not an impediment to it. And so both of those techniques, I think, are useful to help leaders clarify their values and decide appropriately. Yeah, I I agree. It's about stopping where you are right now and projecting into the future and saying, this is what I want the future to look like. And then let that drive the action or whatever you need to do. Exactly. There's a part in your book, and this reminds me of the need right now. Everybody's going back to work, back to the office. And the command and control people are like, yeah, let's get them back into the office where I can see them and control them, right? So they're trying to get, you know, trying to get everybody back. That's all, that's all good in their mind. But the problem is that, uh, you know, there's no, there's no change. They just want everything to go back to the way it was. And there's a Point a part in your book where you talk about and correct me if I get the pronunciation wrong, kintsugi is that right? Uh, kintsugi, yes. Yeah, tell us about that. Well, that's that's interesting. That's uh, kintsugi is a form of of pottery. Yeah, it's an ancient form of pottery where created in China, where the emperor would who had broken say a ceramic pot would have it put back together again, and the goal was not to pretend those cracks didn't exist, but to actually put gold in the seams of those cracks so that it actually had a different appearance and became actually more beautiful because of the cracks, not in spite of the cracks. And I think that's an interesting metaphor for regret that all of us have these cracks in our life, but there's a, they can be a source of beauty. They should not be a source of shame. And they certainly at a more practical level can be an engine for making progress in our personal and professional lives. Yeah, see, it made me think of the leaders trying to put the bowl back together, right? But And you can, you can yeah. try to do that, but then find the gold. You know, where's the gold? There's gold in there somewhere. Find it. Let's bring it out. So I, I really love that. It's the first time I'd heard of that, Kintsugi. Uh, yeah, yeah. And the, the other thing on the, on the back to the office is, like, you have to ask yourself, why do you want people back in the office? Yeah. What's the point? I mean, I, I think there are fundamental questions here. What's an office for? What is an office today? You know, for a long time, an office was a place that had the equipment and the people. 
Um, it was the only place you, you needed to go to the office because that's where the, the, the tools you needed to create wealth were. Um, and you certainly couldn't afford them or house them in, on your own. That's no longer true. And then uh, the, being in the office is the only way to talk to the people you were working with. That's no longer true. Um, so what's an office for? I, I actually don't, I actually don't buy, I, 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 I find it almost impossible to imagine that we're going to go back to a white collar workforce that is entirely remote. I find that very hard to believe. I also find it very hard to believe that we're going to go back to a white collar workforce where people are sitting in cubicles, doing heads down work on their own computers, talking to each other in a downtown office. I don't think that's, I, I think we're going to figure out, I think we're going to figure something out. And I, so I think that going to the office has to be um, intentional. Um, what, what, you have to give people a reason for doing that. And you have to give, you have to have some kind of, of logic behind it. So the idea of just summoning people back to the office because they're like serfs is, is absurd. This is why even the big banks who started doing that around the fall got their head handed to them. They would say, okay, everybody, if you're wrong, be committed. You got to be back in the office. And everybody under 40 was like, okay, whatever. I'll find a new job, dude. Yeah. And, and I see that there's a lot of that going on right now, particularly in automotive, people trying to get their teams back to the office. Mm -hmm. And they often say, well, it's because, you know, we're teams, we should collaborate. I like face-to-face -face collaboration. And I would agree with that to a point, but it's really bullshit. They're really using that as an excuse to get people back into the office. The idea behind, you know, collaboration is exactly as you said, it should be intentional. Yeah. You don't have to come into the office between eight and five come in for a team meeting, for a cross-functional team meeting, when it makes sense. Yeah. And give people the freedom to make those decisions. Right. I generally agree with that. I think a, a bigger problem there is that we don't know, like, what kind of work should we be collaborating on and what kind of work should we be doing ourselves. We don't have a good theory of that. We're going to tease that out. I don't know whether there are nefarious motives behind welcoming people back, encouraging, urging people back in the office. I just think it's a retreat to the to the comfortable, the retreat to the known. People generally don't like uncertainty. And so the idea is the, it's like, wait a second, this is, it's going to be like this forever? I don't like that. Let's just make it the way it used to be. And that's a, that's a pretty common human instinct. It's generally a dangerous human instinct, but it's a pretty common one. And is that why we often choose not to take the action? Because that comfort, that need for comfort and certainty is so compelling? I think that's a big part of it. I think that the momentary need for comfort is stronger than the long-term need for variety in some cases, unless we stop and think about it. That's a very instinctual response. But if we stop and think about it, if we, if we use that, that tool that we were talking about before, saying, okay, my instinct right now is to choose comfort over change. But what does the me of 10 years from now want me to do right now? Probably wants me to choose change over comfort. If my successor came in here, what would she do? She would probably choose change over comfort. It's sort of related to Daniel Kahneman's idea of thinking fast and thinking slow. Sometimes when we think very fast, we make intuitive, instinctual decisions that actually are counterproductive for us. Dan, in your book, you talk a lot about regret Really, the, the other side to regret can tell us what we want in our lives. 
Right. Yeah. We were talking about that before. So with these four core regrets that people around the world tell me, reveal, I mean, they're telling me what they value the most. So foundational regrets, what do people value? Stability, wholeness regrets, what do they value? Growth and learning and psychological richness. Moral regrets, what do they value? Goodness. Connection regrets, what do they value? Love in the full sense of the word, not only romantic love, but just the broader sense of it. That's what people value. And if they value that in their lives, and I think that they do, we have a chorus of 20,000 people telling us what they value in their lives. If that's what they value in their lives, why would they not value it in the half of their waking hours they're spending at work? Let's talk about authentic leadership. And I'm going to read back to you my favorite quote from the book. Okay. And here it is. It says, authenticity requires boldness. And when authenticity is thwarted, so is growth. The most telling demonstration of this point came from several dozen people from all over the world who described their regret, their failure to be bold with the same five words, not being true to myself. That is, I mean, authenticity, there are many forces in the universe and certainly inside of corporations that are countervailing winds to the drive for authenticity. And in some ways, when we choose not to be authentic, we are in choosing comfort over excellence in a way. Mm. And that's a mistake. And, that, and people end up regretting that. And here's the thing. It's an interesting point that you're making because, I mean, among the things we know about regret is that it's a very common emotion. It's one of the most common emotions that human beings have. And we know that if we treat it right, not ignore it and not wallow in it, it can help us on a whole range of tasks. It can help us become better strategists. It can help us become better decision makers, help us become better negotiators, better problem solvers and whatnot. And we also know, as we were talking about before, that when people tell you what they regret, they're telling you what they value. Regret clarifies what matters to us and it instructs us on how to do better in the future. But it comes with discomfort. And people want the clarification and they want the instruction, but they don't want the discomfort. And I'm sorry, it doesn't work that way. You got to have the discomfort. And so this idea that we're, the idea in the short term that we retreat to comfort, that we choose comfort over discomfort is a very dangerous instinct for us. That that growth comes from discomfort, that learning comes from discomfort, um, that progress comes from discomfort. And it comes from putting your voice out there, whether you're saying something or doing something and not being afraid of judgment and this fear of failure that comes along with it. Is there a relationship with fear of failure and regret? Yeah, I would think so. Could be. I mean, I think that that's what, I think that's the fear of failure is what stops people from being bold. Yeah. I think that is certainly, that's certainly part of it. Dan, of the 21 traits of authentic leadership, which one resonates with you the most and why? Right, they're all, they're all good. I'm going to pick two. Uh, I'm going to go with self-awareness, which I think is is a starting point, that if you're not aware of who you are, how you think, what your strengths are, what your weaknesses are, what your values are, how are you going to guide anybody else? All of us, myself included, need work on self-awareness. So I think that's a huge part. The other one is purpose. I think that leaders who have a sense of purpose can iron out some of the other wrinkles. No matter how technically skilled they are, if there's no sense of purpose that they're instilling, they don't go anywhere. Yeah. And really, if you think about it, self-awareness, this idea of understanding regret 
goes deeper into self-awareness, right? Because if you start sure, to understand that, you understand your values and it all feeds on each other. When you say no regrets, I don't have any regrets. I never look backward. That is a, a an act of, is an abject lack of self-awareness. Yeah, I love uh, in the book when you reference several times people that have to take those tattoos off their arms and say no regrets. <laughs> people believe this philosophy of no regrets so deeply, they they enshrine it on their bodies and tattoos. But then, of course, I have people who regret their no regrets tattoo and have to get it removed. <laughs> yeah. Dan, if gravitas is the hallmark of authentic leadership. So not the the true definition of gravitas. I use it to define the the ultimate hallmark of authentic leadership. That being gravitas, what is gravitas to you? I think it's a mix of authenticity, credibility, and vision. All those three things combined. Uh, Authenticity because the person is being true to herself. Credibility, meaning that other people look at the person and, and can trust that person, trust not only their, their morality and what they say, but also trust their competence and then vision. You can be a, an authentic person who, who's credible, who has credibility and technical skill. And if you have no vision, you don't go anywhere. I mean, there's a line from the Bible that, you know, where there is no vision, the people perish. And I, and I think that's generally true. Yes. So, Dan, are you joining me on my mission to make sure that all the leaders in the automotive industry take the bold action that they need to take? I'll join you. I'll cheer you from the sideline. I'll be your hallelujah chorus, whatever you need. (laughs) Well, thank you. And I would like to close today with the Chinese proverb that you quote in your book, and that is the best time to plant a tree is 20 years ago and the second best time is today. Thank you for helping me plant some trees today. Thank you for listening to the Automotive Leaders Podcast. Click the listen link in the show notes to subscribe for free on your platform of choice. And don't forget to download the 21 Traits of Authentic Leadership PDF by clicking on the link below. And remember, stay true to yourself, be you, and lead with gravitas, the hallmark of authentic leadership.